Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. In 1978, North Carolina state officials sought to create a toxic landfill in Warren County, a majority African-American community, after the discovery that 31,000 gallons of toxic PCB compounds had been illegally dumped along 240 miles of, of North Carolina roads. These toxic chemicals posed an immediate danger to residents who lived in the area surrounding these dumping locations. In response, state officials decided to create a landfill to permanently store these chemicals. This landfill posed an immediate damage of leakage into the groundwater system in and around Warren County and put at continuing risk the safety of all residents of that county. The community, led by Dolly Burwell, Reverend Luther Brown, Attorney Floyd McKissick, Reverend Benjamin Chavis, the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice and their allies, launched what would become the environmental justice movement. During the Warren County campaign, over 500 people were arrested as they sought to block dump trucks and other construction equipment that was being used to create the landfill. It would not be until 2003 that this landfill would be detoxified and closed. In 1983, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, determined that over 75% of the hazardous waste dump sites in the country were situated in African-American communities. This movement in North Carolina began with PCB. Today, the issue is corporate hog farms. Environmental racism describes the long-standing discriminatory practice of racial discrimination in environmental policy, the enforcement of regulations and laws, and the deliberate targeting of communities of color for the location of toxic waste facilities. Racially oppressed communities are more likely to be exposed to pollution, toxic waste, and other environmental hazards. On tonight's discussion, we will focus on how our favorite breakfast side is contributing to environmental racism once again right here in North Carolina. North Carolina is the second largest pork producer in the country and it's 9.4 million hog, hogs produce about 10 billion gallons of waste each year, which is stored in lagoons, which are comparable to 15 football fields in size. Can you imagine the smell? Along with the terrible stench, air and water pollution are plaguing the residents of this area. The Southern Environmental Law Center is representing Sampson and Duplin County residents who are pushing for protection from the hog industry 
that primarily dumps pollution on Black, Brown, Latino, Indigenous communities, and low-income households. We're going to take a closer look at this issue tonight. Joining us to discuss these are Blakely Hillebrand, a senior attorney at the Southern Environmental Law Center, Judge Christopher Brooks, who's a former North Carolina Court of Appeals judge and is a professor here at uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law, and others who will be joining us later. So we want to thank uh, our guests for uh, joining us. And I see that Sophie Jet Genhenti is uh, with us uh, already, so I want to introduce her to our audience uh, as well. But thanks to uh, each of you uh, for uh, joining our uh, discussion uh, this evening. Let's jump right into uh, this uh, discussion. I'm going to ask uh, uh, Blakely and Sophie and and, and Chris uh, to uh, to talk a little bit about the state of the environmental justice movement uh, today, and what is it that uh, your organizations are doing to uh, address uh, some of these uh, some of these concerns. So let's start with uh, with Blakely. Thank you so much, Professor Joyner, and to Dean Dawson for having us today. Um, so I'm Blakely Hildebrand. I work for the Southern Environmental Law Center. Uh, we are a um, an organization based here in the Southeast. We work across six states uh, in the Southeast uh, and, and in Washington, D.C. And our mission is to protect clean air, clean water, a livable climate, our region's rich biodiversity, uh, and to ensure a healthy environment for all um, across the Southeast. Uh, pursuing environmental justice is a central, uh, uh, is part of our mission uh, and is central to the work that we do. Um, pursuing environmental justice uh, really is a, uh, it runs through each of our program areas. Uh, it's something that we ask about and work on um, as we develop cases. We work hand in hand with community organizations across the Southeast to pursue environmental justice and ensure that communities are, um, are, uh, you know, are at the table uh, when important decisions about the environment are being made, and when decisions have been made without um, uh, without uh, appropriate input from impacted communities, we are there to help um, elevate those voices um, and uh, fight for environmental protection and protection of public health. Um, here in North Carolina, we've been working. Uh, you know, one of one of our many uh, cases, uh, uh, it, you know, involving environmental justice and pursuing environmental justice, um, is around our, our work to uh, to clean up hog operations in North Carolina. This is a pervasive issue, and I know we'll get into the details uh, later in our conversation. But you know, uh, the the industrial animal industry has really wreaked havoc on the environment, on public health um, of communities throughout Eastern North Carolina. And this industry has in particular impacted Black, Latino, and Indigenous communities in Southeastern North Carolina. If you're Black and live in rural North Carolina, you are twice as likely to live close to a hog operation than if you're white and live in rural Eastern North Carolina. Um, you know, La Latino Americans are 1.4 times more likely to live within three miles of an industrial hog operation than white rural North Carolinians. And indigenous North Carolinians are two times as likely to live within three miles of indus an industrial hog operation. You know, the fact that 
the uh, that the hog industry has impacted has disproportionately impacted communities of color in North Carolina is a very well studied, well researched um, uh, uh, issue, and um, we you know in partnership with community impacted communities in Eastern North Carolina, we've been you know sharing this information, sharing this research with our decision makers for years, and. Um, you know, making progress on the margins and, and looking forward to, to continuing to do that work, um, both in North Carolina and across our region. Uh, Sophie Jahante is the uh, Deputy Chief Counsel at the uh, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under uh, Law. And uh, Sophie, can you kind of talk about what the uh, uh, Lawyers Committee uh, is uh, doing in, uh, in, in this regard and uh, how uh, this... Uh, hog stench uh, is uh, affecting uh, the litigation that you're engaged in. Thank you, Professor Joyner. And just to clarify, um, I'm, I'm counsel in the Fair Housing Division. One day, maybe I'll get to be deputy chief, but for now, I'm counsel um, in our Fair Housing Division of the Lawyers Committee. Um, we are a national civil rights organization that began in the 1960s to address a whole range of civil rights issues going on at that time a lot to do with educational segregation, voter disenfranchisement, um, as well as economic and housing injustice. Um, environmental justice comes into our work through our larger um, commitment to racial injustice. And while I work in fair housing, you know, the spatial justice implications of where um, these types of uh, swine facilities are located ties into the uh, larger spatial issue of where we are allocating burdens and benefits um, through government policies, as well as through pushes through industry. So to me, when I look at the environmental justice issue, I see it within the larger range of intersecting with housing segregation, um, as well as educational segregation and this reinforcement of disparities through geography um, that has been created in North Carolina. Um, so in our work, we actually began working in um, environmental justice when a uh, the environmental clinic at North Carolina, um, who was working on a lot of the um, pig, the swine permit challenges around the environmental racism caused by this operations was closed down. And we um, adopted the clinic into um, the lawyers committee as a satellite office. So before I joined um, into um, the litigation that uh, I, Blakely and my group and others have been involved in, um, we had a team down here um, in North Carolina uh, working on permitting issues for swine, but also for chicken and um, for um, other forms of livestock. So our issues really uh, are focused on how um, you know, this legacy, larger legacy of how um, industry has benefited from these types of segregated housing patterns and to benefit uh, financially from routine legacy discrimination against Black and Latino people. Um, so our work is really focused on trying to figure out, you know, with the loss, a lot of, um, of, of discriminatory intent challenges in the environmental field, what are other ways to pivot and and address the civil rights um, concerns that are going on that are less easily provable through the traditional um, statutory frameworks we used in the past? Um, and we can talk more about that later on. But really, the issue has been how do we, you know, 
leaders have become more bright about hiding intentional discrimination. So how do we really smoke out those practices when um, there's a lot more, um, I guess, um, smoke around um, what, what is motivating these types of disparities? And I mean, it's clear. You look at any um, map and you can see the racial um, patterns of where people are having these significant health uh, disparities that Blakely mentioned. Um, and it's really a historically entrenched practice that connects with a lot of other forms of discrimination from gerrymandering to educational um, and labor discrimination as well. Um, so looking at that intersectionally as environment as tied to all these other social structures that determine our quality of life. Okay, and uh, Judge Brooks, who has uh, had a uh, a long experience in litigation, uh, was formerly with the uh, North Carolina ACLU and uh, has a uh, uh, a very strong litigation uh, history and concern uh, about this uh, issue. Uh, can you kind of talk about uh, from your perspective? and all of the different experiences that you had, how this uh, environmental justice movement is uh, moving and being addressed. Certainly, thank you so much, Professor Joyner, for having me and Dean Dawson for having me. And um, it's just a privilege to be with Blakely and, and Sophie to talk about these issues a little bit. Um, I, uh, my name is Chris Brooke. I'm an attorney at Patterson Harkavy, which is a civil rights law firm in Chapel Hill. North Carolina and Blakely and Sophie, uh, Sophia have done an uh, amazing job talking sort of about I guess what I would consider to be front end sort of citing and regulatory issues. And those are things that are sort of uh, very, very well established from the Warren County landfill that uh, Professor Joyner talked about at the top when I was an attorney at Southern Coalition for Social Justice, fought against Greensboro, uh, expanding a landfill in East Greensboro, which is the historically black portion of the Greensboro community. You know, many, many communities uh, in North Carolina have similar stories and experiences. And, you know, one of the best sort of prisms to view that through is through industrial hog operations, where uh, we know that private and um, uh, private siting decisions and then state regulatory decisions um, too frequently uh, target or do not take seriously concerns raised by communities of color uh, in our state. The thing that I think I can add to this conversation a little bit is to, to focus on the fact that uh, it's not only on the front end, but it's also on the back end, because we have seen these communities get very creative and say, listen, if you're going to dump these industrial hog operations uh, in uh, on our homesteads where we have lived for generations, then we're going to sue you for the impacts that you have on our homesteads and making our homes basically impossible to live in. And uh, in the past decade, communities in Eastern North Carolina took advantage of nuisance laws. Nuisance laws that, you know, if you're a conservative that cares deeply about property rights, you should care about whether you have the right to hold your neighbor to account for destroying your property value. And what we saw is communities um, that are impacted by industrial hog operations very successfully sue the, those IHOs for destroying their, their property rights via the nuisance cause of action. And 
you know, good for those communities, but also I would say good for all North Carolinians, underlining that uh, you have the right to uh, be able to call your neighbor, neighbor to account. But what happened afterwards is very telling, uh, which is that the North Carolina legislature came in and effectively destroyed uh, the right of, uh, of North Carolinians to bring nuisance claims against industrial hog operations. And Patterson Hargaby was pleased to play a role with the Lawyers Committee and assisted by SELC in challenging the legislature destroying that uh, right of nuisance action. But ultimately, um, that litigation uh, was unsuccessful, uh, extinguishing uh, one of the ways that communities had held IHOs to account for destroying uh, the value of their land. So, you know, I think we have to think of these problems in their full scope and from sort of uh, soup to nuts here, because it is, uh, um, it's an across the board uh, problem, not only with siting decisions, but also uh, a real integrated effort between uh, private industry and the government to try to insulate those siting decisions and the harms that flow from those siting decisions uh, from meaningful uh, redress should they harm uh, their neighbors. Mm -hmm. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we are talking about uh, environmental justice and the uh, North Carolina hog farms. I know that is a very dangerous discussion uh, across North Carolina because we are talking about breakfast staples and uh, barbecue dinners uh, that uh, people uh, revel in uh, in, uh, in these uh, communities, but it is a discussion that we, uh, that we need to have. Uh, we're going to take our break uh, right now. I want you to stay with us as we uh, continue this uh, discussion. So we'll be right back. Hello, this is Shantae McNeil, and I'm a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your weekly announcement. This week on the Legal Eagle Review, we discuss one of your favorite breakfast staples, pork, and how it is contributing to environmental racism. Environmental racism describes the practice of racial discrimination in the enforcement and regulation of environmental policy and the deliberate targeting of communities of color for the location of toxic industrial facilities. Did you know Black and low-income communities are 75% more likely to be positioned near pollution, toxic waste facilities, and other major environmental hazards? For more information about what toxins and industrial pollution is affecting your area, check out www.epa. Gov. This is Shantae McNeil with the Legal Eagle Review, and this is your weekly announcement. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this discussion about uh, environmental justice and and, and, and look specifically at uh, these uh, North Carolina hog, hog farms. Uh, this is not uh, the back-in-the-day hog farming uh, operation uh, conducted by uh, families and on family farms. Uh, this is a massive uh, corporate uh, enterprise uh, today that has the uh, effect of uh, really getting rid of the uh, family farms. Uh, 
in uh, in many respects and leaving behind a lot of um, distress in uh, local communities and the vast majority of that distress is found in uh, uh, communities where people of color uh, populate. So, Blakely, can you kind of just describe, uh, you know, the 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 extent of the hog problem uh, in uh, in in North Carolina? Because a lot of people don't understand it, uh, particularly those people who live in the city. And uh, you know, when you live in the cities, you don't have you don't encounter that. But back down in the country. Uh, where these uh, f uh, these operations are, are, are located, it becomes a different uh, kind of issue. So can you just kind of describe to our audience just what the problems are? Uh, but I guess you've really figured out if you drive through those communities, <laughs> you, you'll run right into it, but go ahead. That, that's right. I always... Um... I always roll up my windows when I'm driving on a certain stretch of I-40 or or uh, getting close to the beach or or get off I-40 in certain parts of eastern North Carolina. I mean, uh, we could spend our whole hour really talking about what the problem is. What is the hog problem? I think this is an environmental problem. It's a public health problem. It's a mental health problem. It's a labor problem. And as, as Chris was saying earlier, it's a political problem. Um, this is, uh, you know, the, the the hog industry is um, has really, uh, uh, you know, pork is king. Uh, people have said in, in North Carolina for a long time, and I think that is uh, that that um, I think it, <laughs> it it really captures, I think, what what uh, what's going on here. So. You know, I'll start with the environmental problem, because I think that's what um, a lot of folks don't quite understand. You know, when we think about where our food comes from, uh, uh, it's, it's you know, a lot of us don't know where our food comes from, I guess. Uh, and so, um, you know, at a hog operation, a typical hog operation um, holds about, well, let, let me back up a little bit, if I may, and just provide a little bit of context. And Professor Joyner, you, you just started down this road a moment ago, but uh, North Carolina is the second largest hog producer in the country. We're second um, to Iowa. But both Duplin and Sampson counties are the top two hog producing counties in the country. Uh, our state has about 10 billion or 10 million hogs, excuse me. Up until recently, we had more hogs than people in North Carolina. And those hogs produce a lot of waste. Um, as you said at, at the top of the hour, these hogs produce about 10 billion gallons of waste, and that waste has to go somewhere. Uh, and the waste is mostly stored in giant open air pits. Um, you know, uh, I hope you're not eating lunch or dinner right now, folks. I'm going <laughs> to, uh, uh, hog waste is flushed from a hog barn, which is, you know, which hold, a, you know, upwards of a thousand animals. There are typically several of these hog, or hog barns on an operation. The waste is flushed into an open air pit. The solid waste falls to the bottom, the liquid waste stays at the top, and then that liquid waste is sprayed onto nearby fields. Um, the industry is, has, you know, ter has coined this, uh, this system, the quote unquote lagoon and spray field system. Uh, but these are essentially cesspits and spray fields. Um, and uh, what happens, you know, and these facilities are located in Eastern North Carolina, where 
you know, the, the water table is really high, which means that groundwater is at a very, very high risk of contamination and lots of rural communities and families rely on well water for their drinking water. Um, and this is a very flood prone area. Um, I'm sure we can all, uh, we've all seen headlines about uh, flooded, flooded lagoons or, or flooded uh, spray fields um, after a large rain event or after a hurricane. And if you fly over Eastern North Carolina, you really can't escape um, uh, uh, the 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 kind of overwhelming sense that these that these operations have really taken over uh, this part of the state. Uh, the the landscape is dotted with these Pepto Bismol pink uh, 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 lagoons um, and kind of bright green creeks snaking through Eastern North Carolina. And those bright green creeks are creeks that have been polluted by hog waste. Um, hog waste runs off of the landscape into rivers and streams. Hog waste percolates into the groundwater, which contaminates drinking water. Um, waste is sprayed onto fields and drifts into people's yards, you know, preventing people from having barbecues or sitting outside to enjoy their morning cup of coffee um, or lay, you know, hanging their laundry outside to dry. Um, it pollutes the, the air uh, with ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, and many, and you know, impacts our climate with uh, with you know uh, high amounts of methane methane uh, emissions. Um, and uh, you know this this waste um, also um, you know in addition to excuse me, in addition to all of these environmental issues, it, you know, these environmental problems, this pollution causes um, health impacts as well. People who live near hog operations are, um, get sick more often, stay sick for longer and die sooner than folks who live farther away. And there's increasing research to support, uh, to support, uh, to tie the presence of hog operations and this irresponsible waste management system with um, adverse public health outcomes. Um, but I will stop there. Uh, there's so much more to say, but I'll pause there and let others weigh in uh, with with thoughts um, and and information. Um, Blakely, Blakely, thank you for that description. And you know, it's easy on the one hand to kind of just hear about it generally and not really get a sense of the magnitude of the problem. So thank you so much for um, detailing that. Sophia, you were talking about. Um, how this is part of a larger kind of issue. It's not just about the hog farms. It's also about economics. It's also about health. It's also about education. As Blakely was talking about the nature of the property, um, you know, you can't help but think about the value, right? And so, of course, you've got the health implications, but you also have real economic implications. Can you talk a little bit about how um, property that, that may very well be owned by individuals who live in Eastern North Carolina and the importance of, of property and how the ability of these hog farms to be able to devalue their real property has a larger impact when we're just even thinking about economics and then also education when you think about the schools and the surrounding areas. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, a lot of these areas, right, uh, where swine um, facilities are, are areas that were affordable to build swine facilities. But there are also places that were affordable to purchase housing um, for people who are low income who tended to be Black or Latino folks. 
And so, you know, these facilities have really cashed in on the um, the power imbalance going on there to really in, externalize these costs on the folks who live nearby. So yeah, you're not dealing just with health costs. You're talking about generational wealth loss that's happening here. You know, mm-hmm. housing when it's nearby these types of environmental pollutants is going to go down in the value of the property, and that means that the next you know generation who inherits that home is not going to have an increased value in their property as well. So you're talking also about these major wealth losses that accrue, you know, or fail to accrue because. <laughs> of um, the environmental harms that really reduce property values. I mean, you know, individuals, as uh, Blakely was saying, can't enjoy their homes. Um, They can't build out their communities and it interferes with the ability to create an, an, uh, um, you know, uh, not an integrated community, but strong community bonds when you have this type of spatial alienation going on. Um, so I definitely think that there are, you know, major economic losses um, in terms of housing, which is our main source of wealth in this country for most people. Um, so the, with the stagnation of housing, you not only have people who are losing wealth, but they can't even sell their housing um, at a price that works so that they can move out. So you're trapping folks um, with one of the few resources they have in tangible wealth. But in fact, it's not actually improving in value, which is the goal, right, to really build um, social wealth for most people in this country. Um. Thank you for that. Um, and Chris, you were talking about, and I and I know our time is um, a little short before we get to our next break, and we'll kind of expand upon this in the the last segment. But if you could talk a little bit more about, uh, in light of the fact that we don't have the nuisance actions that can be brought in order to allow individuals to be compensated for the harm and injury that they've suffered. What are the options, right? Um, Blakely mentioned that we're making some progress at the margins. What do we need to do and how can we uh, make further progress in light of the fact that you don't have some of the, one of the major tort claims no longer available? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's a that's a real scandal here is you see sort of a comprehensive effort to kind of lock the door on lock the doors on every form of recourse that you possibly could have. Uh, The legislature is, I think it would be charitable to say, unbelievably deferential to uh, the hog industry and, you know, talks about protecting family farms, et cetera, et cetera which I think probably could be fairly characterized as Orwellian here, as we're talking about massive industrial hog operations that are owned by multinational corporations. Uh, this is not, these are not mom and pop outfits. These are hog operations that have two to 10 confinement buildings holding thousands of hogs that produce between 4,500 4, to 15,000 gallons of feces and uh, hog urine on a daily basis. So, you know, the legislature is not a place uh, to go um, for recourse and indeed has taken steps to close the courthouse uh, uh, doors by eliminating, uh, Dean Dawson, as we talked about previously, uh, the ability to hold people to account uh, via nuisance actions. 
Um, and Blakely um, and Sophia can talk about this um, more in more detail and more eloquently, no doubt, than I can. But, you know, really, you one of the options that remain is going to be EPA um, and uh, doing things like the Title VI complaint that uh, SELC recently filed related to hog farms in Bladen and Sampson County. Um, and um, uh, the NAACP supported in Bladen and Sampson County um, because related to the legislature sort of not being a friendly uh, place to hear these uh, disputes, the legislature has put a huge amount of pressure on state regulatory uh, forces here who should uh, be playing a large role given that uh, we know not only uh, the human toll um, that IHOs take on people who live nearby, but you know if you've lived in North Carolina for any amount of time, you know that every five years you get pictures of hog lagoons running over into nearby lakes and streams every time we have a hurricane that passes through eastern North Carolina. It's like clockwork. Most recently with Hurricane Florence in, in 2018, but the state regulatory um, forces have an incredible amount of pressure put on them by the legislature as well. So that really does start to limit uh, the places where you can seek recourse and having an environmental protection agency that takes seriously um, environmental justice and environmental racism is, is absolutely necessary when you have a circumstance like that uh, in a state uh, where North Carolina and the leaders in North Carolina have, have engaged in a pretty comprehensive effort to try to shut people out from recourse that they could get here in the state. Well, you know, it, it, it sounds like, and this is just a kind of follow-up on that uh, those comments, uh, uh, Judge Brooks, uh, that there is some type of collusive actions that's uh, that's underway uh, here, particularly in a state where you have a environmental protection agency at the state level, and then you have at the federal level uh, the em- environmental protection uh, agency that is led by a uh, an individual who comes from uh, those uh, very same uh, communities. Uh, if is that not, or does that not constitute uh, a taking in the constitutional sense uh, that can be attributable to the uh, to both the state and federal uh, government, where there is a uh, an omission to act uh, to uh, stem the tide of these uh, of these uh, invasions on these uh, property rights. Well, I mean, I, what I can say is that certainly you're going to have to be creative um, in regards to bringing litigation because there's been a real effort to sort of try to checkmate uh, efforts to, to litigate here. But to your point, uh, uh, Professor Joyner, if you look at the bills that were passed through the North Carolina legislature after people did start to get uh, homeowners who live near IHOs did start to get some measure of redress in the form of dollars for harms that had been visited upon them by IHOs that had moved in next door and really destroyed their quality of life. Um, The legislature did not make any effort to disguise what they were doing. Uh, In that legislative debate, they said, we need to stop these causes of action uh, in the future because these lawsuits are being brought by homeowners who are being harmed. Uh, So the idea that this is some sort of you know, neutral effort as opposed to a direct effort 
to stop people from being able to use the courts to get redress, um, the supporters of the bill acknowledge that this is an effort to stop litigation to provide that provides some form of remedy for folks who have been harmed. And so, Blakely, um, Chris mentioned the EPA, and so we know we're not getting a lot of support at the state and local level. What about at the national level? You would think that the situation that you all have described and the horrendous conditions that people are having to live under, that the federal government, especially when we have a national environmental protection agency, would, would weigh in. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And um, I think we are, um, you know, we're lucky to be working at, you know, uh, existing in, in, a, in an administration, working under administration, federal administration that has prioritized environmental justice. Um, you know, environmental justice was uh, was part of the of the presidential debates many years ago. I think for the first time ever, um, environmental justice has been a central tenant of the Biden administration's um uh, platform and priorities, and certainly Administrator Regan, who, as Professor Joyner pointed out, used to be here in North Carolina and lead the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality. He has prioritized environmental justice and made that a central part of his agency's work. Um, <laughs> despite despite those commitments, um, uh, uh, you know, we we um, you know, I think the agency is. Um, Still has a lot to do to enforce, proactively enforce um, uh, civil rights laws. Um, and you know, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits um, uh, federal funding recipients in North Carolina. Agent state agencies receive a lot of federal funding from federal agencies um, from discriminating on the basis of race. And so Title VI um, has, you know, is a very important tool for advocates like Sophia and Chris and I to use to advance um, the interests of um, impacted communities that are impacted by this type of pollution. Um, EPA's EPA has um, adopted regulations that uh, that prohibit dis discriminatory intent. I'm sorry, discriminatory impact. Excuse me. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act very explicitly prohibits discriminatory intent, but EPA's regulations also um, go a step further and and, and prohibit. Um, uh, discrimination, discriminatory intent. So in other words, if a an agency policy has the effect of um, uh, uh, having, has the effect of discriminating against people of color, those impacted community members can, can go to EPA and seek, seek relief um, under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And this is one of the few tools that we have at our disposal um, to really advance uh, environmental justice um, at the federal level. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about environmental justice here in North Carolina, focusing specifically on the hog industry that primarily dumps pollution and hog waste in black, brown, Latino, and indigenous communities. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, three wonderful attorneys who are doing um, incredible work trying to support individuals and communities that find themselves on the wrong end of environmental dumping. 
We have with us Blakely Hildebrand. She is a senior attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center. Sophia Jayanti, who is counsel in the Fair Housing Division with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. And Chris Brooke, who is an attorney with Patterson Harkavy, also a former North Carolina Court of Appeals judge and a constitutional law professor here at NCCU School of Law. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I'm a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. Phoenix Fest is back for its annual cultural celebration of the business and cultural legacy of Durham's Haytai community, one of North Carolina's oldest African-American communities. Fayetteville Street will be blocked off and transformed into an exciting marketplace filled with all-day music, delicious foods, and a variety of vendors. The music will range from reggae, gospel, R&B, blues, jazz, and hip-hop. The event is free and open to all ages of the public. The event will be held on Saturday, October 7th, beginning at 11 a.m. until 6 p.m. on the historic Fayetteville Street. In case the 7th is postponed due to rain, it will be scheduled for October 14th at the same time. This is Kiana Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. We're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour about the environmental justice issue, one of many that is plaguing North Carolina, the industrial hog complex and the millions of gallons of waste that is dumped particularly in black and brown communities. We have with us, talking with us about this issue and educating us, Blake Hildebrand. She is a senior attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center. Sophia Gianti, counsel in the Fair Housing Division with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. And Christopher Brooke, who is a former North Carolina Court of Appeals judge, an attorney with Patterson Harkavy, and a constitutional law professor here at NCCU School of Law. Irv and I have had a couple of shows where we've talked about the industrial hog complex and the environmental justice issues plaguing North Carolina. And every time we have these discussions, either on the show or within our communities or in our classrooms, I'm always very conscientious about, you know, purchasing pork. Um, and, and I think it's, helpful for us to talk about the difference between kind of local small um, operations, hog operations, and contrasting that with these huge industrial hog complexes. Um, let's see, Sophia, can you kind of give us um, the distinction between the two and why these industrial complexes are such a problem? Well, I think Blakely may be better positioned to answer that. Um, you know, I would say that 
most of these uh, facilities, right, are not um, small family farms, right? They're not, uh, they don't have five or less workers on them. These are huge facilities that have, um, you know, lots of hogs on them, right? And uh, built out into these industry, right? About maybe, you know, we're talking large acreage industry uh, facilities. So, you know, this is much bigger than a family farm where they raise hogs and feed them sustainably through, you know, what they have on, um, on the actual um, property. Uh, you know, they're bringing in food, um, you know, large amounts of um, produce to feed these animals. So this is um, a much larger scale than what the Farm Bureau and others have, have really used as their political messaging for who we're working with here. Um, but Blakely and um, Christopher may have some more detail. Sure, I'm happy to jump in here. And Sophia, you're absolutely right. Um, these are massive industrial, most of these are massive industrial operations. We're talking thousands and thousands of hogs um, that, and these operations are managed by often contract farmers um, that are given kind of a, 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 a bucket, a, 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 every part of the hog production process is dictated by what Smithfield or Prestige or another massive corporation um, says uh, in terms of what the, what the pigs are fed, how much space they have, how, you know, what kind of antibiotics they're, uh, they are administered um, to how much, um, you know, to how big they can get. I mean, every, every, how, how large the, the barns are, how big, you know, every component of the production um, is, is dictated by, um, uh, by an, an, what we call an integrator, the Smithfield, the Prestige, um, JBS, whatever the, 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 the corporation is. Um, and there's a lot more waste uh, that's produced by these massive operations than what the land can actually um, uh, 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 support, right? Um, contrast that with a smaller operation um, of, you know, one to 200 hogs at the most um, that are out on pasture that are creating waste, but the, but the, the, the plants that are on that pasture can take up the nutrients in that waste. And so it doesn't, you know, that, you know, the, the, the pollution or the, the pollutants that are part of that waste, you know, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the, the heavy metals, you know, aren't running off into rivers and streams and creating um, algal blooms and fish kills. The plants on that pasture are using those nutrients uh, to continue to grow. Um, and the hogs have space. Uh, the farmer has um, has much more autonomy to determine how big the hog should be before it goes uh, before it goes to slaughter. What kind of space the hog needs, and so forth and so on. Um, and yeah, I don't want folks to take away from this from this conversation that you should all go be vegetarians. I will confess, I am not a vegetarian, despite <laughs> working on these issues. And uh, uh, and you know, everybody has their reason for for making their their food choices. I will say, if you want to make different decisions, we are lucky um, here in the Triangle to have a number of wonderful farmers markets that have several um, uh, farmers that raise. Um, hogs, cattle, chickens sustainably. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you want to continue your 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 meat consumption, that you explore what those options are um, here in the Triangle. There are also, you know, many other sustainably sustainable um, uh, 
uh, hog farms and, and poultry farms and uh, cattle farms in North Carolina. We're lucky to be in a state that, that that does support sustainable agriculture. And so I'd encourage folks to do a little bit of research and see see what they can find at their weekend farmer's market. You know, this, this is really a uh, very uh, important uh, discussion where we've learned a lot. Uh, in another sense, it's kind of uh, depressing uh, to uh, hear about the uh, collusive nature of uh, what's going on uh, within uh, this state. Uh, what, what is the little guy, you know, that uh, that farmer or that uh, resident who resides in these uh, communities now that uh, don't have the uh, blessings of the uh, government? Uh, what what can they do? What are the resources that are available uh, to them since they can't uh, put up a shield? And block out uh, the uh, the uh, pollution that they are subjected to. So, what is it that uh, that they can do, and to whom can uh, they go uh, to uh, seek uh, relief? I'm happy to jump in on this briefly, and then uh, we'll happily defer to others if they have more to add. Um, you know, I'm really glad we're having this conversation right now um, because we are in the middle of a um, of a regulatory process uh, and a public comment process where the state is actually right now accepting input from the public about how it should change the the permits um, which uh, set the rules for these hog operations. Um, there are several hearings coming up in the next month or so. The first one is on August 5th in Keenansville, and there's another in Goldsboro on August, on, excuse me, on October the 10th. Um, and these are um, these are public hearings where impacted community members can come out and share their stories about what it's like to live close to a hog operation. Um, you can also uh, community members can also submit comments, written comments if they can't if they can't show up at a hearing or don't feel comfortable speaking out at a hearing like that. Um, they can also submit submit information, um, submit those comments in writing to the State Department of Environmental Quality. And I'm happy to share this information uh, with you all as well um, for show notes if if that would be helpful. Um, the other thing I would suggest is that uh, is to get involved with a with some of the fantastic organizations that are working on this issue in Eastern North Carolina. Several come to mind. Um, several of the NAACP chapters in Eastern North Carolina are very active on this issue. The Duplin County NAACP, the Sampson County NAACP, the Lenore County NAACP, and I know I'm leaving some out. Those are three that I know I've I've had contact with. Um, in Sampson County, the Environmental Justice Community Action Network, or EJ CAN, is very active on this issue and has lots of volunteer opportunities. And then um, uh, uh, REACH, the Rural Empowerment Association for Community Help um, in, in Duplin County, is very active on this issue. Um, and there are several um, riverkeeper organizations that are um, doing uh, water quality testing and um, sharing a lot of technical information with the state um, and folks um, uh, in positions of power that are making decisions about these important issues. So I encourage folks to use their voice um, to listen to podcasts like this uh, and get educated on the issue and plug in with the impacted community organizations that are working on the ground in these communities um, to help um, educate and advocate for environmental justice. Yeah, I think I think documenting right um, these types of issues when they come up. You know, in Baltimore where I live, 
Um, there's been some growth in um, citizen scientists as well to do air testing and monitoring. And they've partnered with Johns Hopkins, but there's also universities around North Carolina that people could link up with to build out that infrastructure. And, um, you know, going back to like a more formal channel, there is still the Title VI process to file a complaint. Um, you know, uh, there has been pushback and they are not always an immediate um, um, quick way to getting that relief, but all of that documentation, all of those reports matter. Um, and what we need to do is really keep um, sounding the alarm and keep the record robust from people who are impacted and from their advocates and allies. And, you know, like Blake is saying, join up because people all over North Carolina are concerned about this issue and they're concerned about it in other states as well when it comes to environmental justice patterns of um, disparities that may be unique to their area, but um, have a similar types of political power play patterns going on and the same type of, um, you know, um, ignoring of these disparate effects that occur that are harder to prove um, under our Title VI laws. But there are a lot, um, I think North Carolina, you know, um, Title VI is also a good place along with state advocacy as well. Okay, thank you uh, for those uh, those comments and suggestions that people uh, can take uh, acts that they can take to uh, seek to address uh, the issue. I, I would think that uh, one action uh, in these uh, communities uh, is to uh, go out and vote, uh, to uh, elect uh, legislators who will go into the uh, General Assembly with a different mindset that they are not going to be uh, co-opted by the uh, corporate interests uh, that uh, are there and that uh, seeking to be uh, protected. And uh, so that's a very big piece, uh, particularly in uh, an area like Sampson and Bladen and Manoa uh, counties where uh, this is, is pretty spread out and there's not a lot of cohesive uh, cohesive uh, political action uh, that's uh, that's there, but uh, but community people can join together and and raise some hell and put people into the legislature that will uh, join with them in uh, echoing and amplifying uh, the uh, the uh, the distress that they are uh, that they're dealing with. So uh, I thank you for that uh, for that information. Um, and Irvith, the other thing that I could. Add, just kind of piggyback on what you were saying in terms of the importance of voting and it means that you have to be educated about the issues and to fully understand and appreciate this issue you have to understand the history of environmental justice and so when you kind of brought us in with your introduction you of course talked about the history of environmental justice which you know started here in North Carolina um, Chris, can you talk about as, you know, not only a, a lawyer, former judge, but also an educator about the importance of understanding the history and being able to apply that to what's going on current day? Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential. And that's why I was thrilled to hear and I'm totally unsurprised because Professor Joyner and, and you both appreciate that you have to have a sound foundation and footing in where things have been to understand why things are they, the way they are now. So um, starting with the conversation um, about Warren County and how really the, the roots of the environmental justice movement are right here 
uh, in North Carolina, Warren County, for those who don't know, also in the eastern part of the state um, and uh, on the Virginia border. I think it's also important to understand sort of the geography of how these issues play out. Um, eastern North Carolina and the people of Eastern North Carolina, who, as we talked about, are disproportionately Black, Latino, um, and Indigenous, bear the brunt of many of the um, uh, nasty and onerous um, byproducts that we have uh, here in North Carolina today. That is not a new thing. Listen, we could go back and have a broader conversation about Wilmington and about efforts to diminish Black political power in the eastern portion of North Carolina, which has systematically been a part of our state for more than 100 years and is inextricably intertwined with these environmental um, uh, uh, burdens that eastern North Carolina uh, faces. But yeah, no, I think you have to understand all of that history to understand that it's not happenstance. Uh, that these um, burdens are being imposed on particular communities. And having that history allows you to push back against the framing that other people um, uh, put uh, around these sorts of issues where they talk about, quote unquote, family farms. When we know that, you know, to take, for example, the farm that was at issue front and center in McKeever versus Murphy Brown, which was the Fourth Circuit case here, or was the Bladen County farm, that was um, part of Smithfield's industrial hog operation in eastern North Carolina. This is not a family farm. The family. This is a farm that was spraying 8 million gallons of hog feces on the farm annually. That is not, you know, that's unfathomable to me, but it is completely comprehensible that that is not a family farm. So we need to have that historical backdrop and foundation for why these harms are visited on particular communities so that we can provide that frame for folks when talking about these issues and push back against uh, the disingenuous framing that this is somehow um, uh, people not liking family farms. All right. Well, thank you all for giving of your time and sharing your expertise and providing us with um, much needed information about what's going on in this space. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, Blakely Hildebrand. She is a senior attorney at the Southern Environmental Law Center. Sophia Jayanti, she is counsel in the Fair Housing Division of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law. Christopher Brooke, he is an attorney at Patterson Harkavy, also former Court of Appeals of North Carolina judge and professor here at NCCU School of Law. And we also want to express special thanks to Shantae McNeil. She is a second year law student here at NCCU School of Law. She is a research assistant for the Legal Eagle Review and she was the student producer of this show. So thank you so much, Ms. McNeil, for all your hard work pulling together such an amazing group of guests. Um, and thank you for all your continued support of Professor Joyner and myself. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. 
Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.